that we don't have fun every time we come together, but I think it's a good day to be here. So why don't you look at your neighbor and go, I think you chose the right day to be here. Good job. You can congratulate him. Uh, my family has a pastime, a uh, uh, thing that we do every time we go on vacation that uh, may be unusual. I don't know. Uh, I'm sure other families have done this, but we love looking at the stars. Anybody in here enjoy looking at the stars? Like the heavens proclaim the Lord's glory. The proclamation is going out from the very beginning of creation, and it, the, the, the heavens sing of how wonderful and amazing that God truly is. Do you, uh, whenever I, I look up and, uh, and take it in whenever it, it, it causes my heart to uh, truly to respond with praise to the Lord. Because it, it's incredible. It's unimaginable. You, the expanse of what you're looking at. The, the, the light and the, the communication of the heavens. Did you know that the heavens are proclaiming that there's a story written there? That in the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth and he created these what we know as stars, when you look up at those heavens, that there is a story that's been written there, that for signs and seasons, for times, that they are telling the story, that it's the God clock. You know, you look at your wristwatch and you go, oh, and we measure in, you know, in seconds. We measure in minutes. We have broken our day into little tiny fractions of time. Do you know that the heavens do that too? That it's proclaiming and telling you what time and what season it truly is in history right now. And I can't get into it today. It's not the purpose of today's sermon. But it is an incredible experience. And so our family often will go to places like national parks. Uh, You know, there's a few that we really, really have come to love. Uh, We love the area around Moab. And one of the reasons we love Moab, because it's warm, because there is rarely like precipitation, like the weather's not going to get in your way from doing stuff, which is kind of fun. But one of the reasons that I love it is because it's an international dark sky, international dark sky place. You can see the stars better there than you can really anywhere. And so we will go out. Now, the stars don't actually begin to sing until about 2 a.m. So you can imagine us with our little tribe taking everybody out and uh, we'll go find, we'll drive hours out into wilderness and we'll find some barren place and uh, we'll, we'll put like kind of older kids or have the perimeter to make sure no creepy crawly stuff is around us and we'll all lay out on the pavement looking up at the stars. It takes about 20 minutes for your eyes to adjust to heaven's light where just a normal light, you know, pollutes what you see. And after that wears off, after you begin to see, oh man, You'd be amazed what's there. It's incredible. The constellations, the story, it pops right out. You can actually see it. You can see the formations. And so this is part of what I enjoy doing with my kids is because God's story is written there. And so we'll talk about it. I'll point out constellations and help them see it. We'll talk about what God's done in history, how it relates off the prophetic story. It's an incredible experience. But one of the first things that we do 
If you're new here and you're wondering if you're in the right place, right, church? Like, this is biblical. Heaven has been proclaiming God's story from the very beginning. It's in the scriptures in multiple places where the prophets, most likely when they're talking about looking at the heavens and the vision that appears, most likely they were looking at the stars and the story popped off the page. When we do this, we look at the heavens, there's something that I teach the kids how to do like first thing. It's like the first skill that I teach them how to do in learning how to interpret and read is we find Polaris, the North Star. Anybody familiar with this one? The North Star is important because the North Star is the only star that doesn't move. If you hang out outside long enough, you'll watch as the parade of the story goes across the sky except for Polaris. Polaris stays put because it's aligned with our North Pole. And so as the Earth is rotating, it stays still and everything else is rotating around it. And so if you can find the North Star, then you know how to find the other constellations. So we teach the kids how to find the North Star, and then from that, they know how to look for other constellations that are in the sky. Looked for other markers. And we have a lot of fun with it. You know, the kids come up with their own names for some of these things, but it's one of the ways that I've been able to talk to them about the mystery of the, the, the larger-than-life story that you and I are a part of. Do you know that you, while you live inside of time, your home is in eternity? That while you have 70, 80, 90, 120 years here on earth in time, the eternal life of heaven that has no beginning and no end, that eternal life of heaven is filling your being while you live here and it is supposed to transform the world around you. That the life of heaven and the river of life that Jesus instituted in your heart, it pours into you from the vastness of the story into your little slice, your little moment. Man, 120 years is nothing in compared to eternity. Anybody alive this morning? Your little slice of time is nothing in comparison to the big story. We fit into his story. Our story isn't determining God's. It's kind of weird, but we have this like experience where we think we're the center of the universe. Man, the stars don't rotate around us. The stars don't rotate around us. No, no. As our world turns, God's story gets put on display. But it stays stationary. Same with eternity. Same with God's story. See, have you ever been to the mall and uh, you approach the, the map? You know what I'm talking about? Like, you, you come to the map, and if you see it, there's going to be a red dot somewhere on the map of the mall. And that little red dot will have a phrase next to it. What does it say? You are here, which is brilliant. Because I was never confused about where I was. Okay, the only reason that is helpful is because I'm trying to get somewhere. 
So I have a destination in mind, and so then the red dot becomes helpful. You are here. You are here tells me, oh, I have to walk, you know, if you're at the Mall of America, I have four miles to get back to my car, you know? If you remembered where you parked, you know. Has anybody, have anybody ever went to the map to find where your car was, and you, then you realized, man, I didn't pay attention? And suddenly all the memories of all the different times you've been to the mall cart flashing through your, wait, was, did I park there? Did I park there? Did I, and you're lost, confused, tossed here and there by every wind and trickery of doctory of men. <laughs> wondering how you fit in the story. You are here is helpful, okay? You are here is the cross of Jesus Christ. You are here anchors you into eternity. You are here is that Jesus has saved you and you absolutely have a future, you have a hope. You're, you're, you're not lost. Praise God. But did you know that Jesus came and he died and rose from the dead and that salvation has touched your life in this moment of history? You were not born again 2,000 years ago. You were born again here, now. That Jesus saved you and then left you. Because there is a story that is still being told. Because there is a part that you play. Because there's more to this than just getting saved. If you know where you're supposed to go and you have you are here, then you can plot a course. See, the North Star, I... Is, is an amazing thing. I, I, God is it's masterful that this exists. If you're on the seas and you're in a boat and you're, you're tossed in the ocean, sailors will look up and they'll find the North Star and it will tell them which direction they're going in. Because if you know where North is, you know where you are oriented towards. The North Star tells you there's an a absolute truth to the direction that you are heading in. But without that polar north, without the true north, without a sense of calling, of purpose, of destiny, of where you're trying to get to, you're lost at sea. I want to talk to you today about how God anchors us inside of time. How God speaks and he calls to every person, every family, every generation, and he's beckoning them to participate in his story. And that if we will, if we'll align with what God is doing, then all of a sudden you and I have purpose in life, we know where we're going, we're not lost, and we won't get messed up. We get messed up when we don't have a sense of direction. Everybody in here needs direction from time to time, even the guys. Where are you at, guys? Come on. You know, you're lost. You don't know where you're going. Even if you're telling yourself, no, I know how to get there. Sometimes we all have to call upon the almighty oracle of Siri to help us find the way. <laughs> Siri, help me. Directions, please. Can I ask you a question today? What's your North Star that is giving you direction 
and is not moved by any circumstances that your life goes through. What's your North Star? Some might say, Jesus is the North Star. Jesus is your anchor point, but without a second point of context, you don't have direction. It takes two. Jesus anchors you and you are here. Where are you going? His story tells you where you're going. The prophecies of his kingdom and what he's about in this moment of history tells you where you're going. These things point towards the future and you need them in your life. All of us need these things in our lives. Parents, how do you help your kids navigate life? What do you point them towards? How do we practically help our kids find their North Star so they don't get shipwrecked by the world system? What anchors them when you are gone? And the day you pass, see, this thing happens to families all the time. I've watched it many times. As a pastor, I've done, uh, you know, I would say far too many funerals, but it's part of humanity is that we have a journey in life and that journey will come to an end. Like, one day you will pass from this life. It's not a fun thought necessarily, but you should consider it because it helps to anchor your life. But I've done funerals where I've watched and this experience happens, especially if it's an aged, like a grandparent, a patriarch of a family. When the patriarch of a family passes away, the next generation, it's the moms and dads, They'll look at one another and there's this sort of bewilderment. And, and often I'll watch families flounder. When the patriarch leaves, the families won't know how to stay together. And so often that's the moment where we stop having Christmas together. Often that's the moment where we stop coming together for birthdays. Because it was the direction, it was the calling, it was the purpose of that patriarch to tell the family where we're going. And when that voice leaves, now all of a sudden we're lost and we gotta figure out, wait a second. What's amazing is that eventually something will happen. There will be an aunt or an uncle, one of them. Maybe it'll be you that'll rise up and go, man, I really wish we did Christmas together. And they'll propose to the family, and next thing you know, the family. Once a voice rises up and points the way, suddenly the family will come back together. Parents, when you're dead and gone, what will be the story? What will be the North Star? What will be the thing that your children hearken to when your voice is missing? Today, we're going to look through the scriptures. We're going to talk about this because there is practical wisdom there is a calling to each one of us to have a sense of where we are in God's timeline and how to pass it on to the next generation. Are you alive? Okay, you ready for this? Here we go. This is Genesis chapter 13. Now, normally I would just tell the story like an individual, but today we're going to tell the story of a place, physical location. This is Genesis 13. And we're going to start in verse 14, but let me just set the stage, okay? Abraham, his name was Abram at the time, hadn't been changed yet, but Abram had journeyed into the land of Canaan, and he brought his nephew Lot. Okay, Abram's brother passed away. Lot, his son, joined Abram, and this whole family, this clan, has moved. God has been blessing them. Their herds are growing they're the people that are working their herds, so the servants in their household are growing. The family 
in terms of how much possessions, the blessing of the Lord is on their lives, and it's just like increased. And it gets to this point where they have to make a decision because the land they're in doesn't sustain all of the stuff. And so it says that Abram and Lot came together and they decided, hey, we got to split up. We got to move our resources different places. And so Abram being the uncle said to his nephew, hey, nephew, you just choose which direction you want to take your herds in. You choose the land you want. I'll go in the opposite direction. So Lot looked and he saw this valley that's lush and beautiful. It had two wonderful, thriving metropolises in it, Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> and that's what he chose, right? And so there Lot went, prophesying his future in cryptocurrency. It's going to be awesome. Not understanding it was about to crash and burn. It's like being a Packer fan this year. It looked like we were going to make it, and then <laughs> Abram looked at the valley. He said, you go get it, nephew. And then something happened. God came and spoke to Abram, and this is where we pick it up, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. All the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land, its length, its breadth. I'm going to give it to you. Abraham then moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oak or oaks of Mamre which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Okay, this place must have been significant because Abram sojourns the land, and then he comes back to this place, and he chooses, ah, this is where I'm going to dwell, and he builds an altar to the Lord, and this is where he's going to call on the name of the Lord. This is home base. Something significant is going on in this physical location. He has encountered the Lord there and will continue to encounter the Lord. But this promise is given to him that the land, all of it, will belong to his family forever. That his descendants will be as the dust of the earth. That all this land, eastward, westward, northward, it all belongs to him and his descendants. Now, why is this significant? Because Abraham is going to live 175 years. Isaac lives 180. Jacob lives 147 years. The time between when Abraham received the promise and when Moses would deliver Israel out of Egypt and they would begin their walk across the wilderness was 430 years. 40 more years of wandering in the desert before Joshua takes them across the river finally into the land of promise. 470 years, this promise is anchoring generations. That promise is the north star for Israel. They're lost. They are goners. They are slaves in a land for 400 years, and something in their conscious memory is thinking about that land. Something spiritual and significant anchored them there. 
What's the thing that causes you, your heart, to, you know, you get off track, and then something starts to stir, and you hearken back to the Lord? What's, what's the calling? What's the divine purpose that's inside of you? What are the prophetic promises that God's given to you, to your family, to us as a people? Man, you're, if you're in this church, you're not here by accident. Like, you're not here by accident. Offense hasn't driven you from here. If you haven't been offended yet, you're new. Like, that's it. Like, you will be offended and you'll be tempted to leave, but something will keep you here. And what will it be? It has to do with prophetic destiny. It has to do with purpose. It has to do with what God's doing. It's a stirring in us as a people because we are on a journey. Something's happening. And that thing ties us and anchors us to something that's bigger than personalities. That moment of promise became Israel's North Star that would keep them on track for generations. Uh, something else that happens at that place, the Oaks of Mamre. Um, eventually, it's, I mean, really, it's the holy tree. I just want to start saying that because uh, it, it's, in, in history, it's a tree. Something about this tree anchors Israel. Something about a holy tree anchors Israel. Isn't it interesting that there's something about a holy tree that continues to anchor Christianity? At that place where Abram is uh, living, it's chapter 14, starting in verse 13, it says a fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew, he was living by the oak of Mamre, and he's basically telling him the story that there were five kings that came and sacked Sodom and Gomorrah. Armies came, five armies came and took the cities captive, and Lot, his nephew, and his whole family were taken captive with him. And so Abraham looks at his fighting men, gathers them up, and he goes and whoops five armies. That calling of divine protection, of the go and protect your family, of uh, I'm an authority in the land and the people in trouble came to me. That thing rises up in Abram, and it happens at the holy tree. It happens at the oak of Mamre. That place, that physical space, is where this encounter, this experience happens of crisis and decision. What will you do about it? Will you risk everything? to rescue a people that you're not a part of? Will you go save your nephew, forget everybody else? What's going on here? And he makes a crisis decision, and he steps out, and he sends his men to go fight a battle that's not his, and he defeats five armies. That place becomes the place of protection. It was the place of promise, and now it's the place of protection. This experience does something because immediately after, now I want you to think about this, okay? All of the money and the wealth of Sodom and Gomorrah, all the resources, all that stuff got taken captive by these armies. And Abraham went and defeated those armies. So all that stuff now belongs to Abraham. That was the culture of the day. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah come to Abraham and they're like, so, hey, what happened was... <laughs> And Abraham just says to him, you can have all your stuff back. Like, 
you will not say concerning me that your stuff made me wealthy. It's the Lord that made me wealthy. Now hear this though. Out of the victory, Abram gets approached by a priest named Melchizedek, who is the high priest unto the Lord in the city of Salem. Salem is another name for Jerusalem. The high priest of Jerusalem unto the Lord comes and finds Abraham, and this is what it says concerning what Abraham does with all his stuff. He tithes to Melchizedek. Before this moment, Abraham was an idolater. It says it in the scriptures about him, that he served multiple gods, not just one. Before this moment, Abraham is an idolater. And in this moment of recognition that the promise and the provision and the protection all came from the Lord, Abraham goes up, I'm going to tithe to the Lord. I'm going to give 10% of everything that's in my life to him. This is not, this, this isn't how churches finance themselves. This is not how ministries move forward. This is not new covenant or old covenant. This is who is your God? Is it your stomach? Is it your strength that makes you wealthy? Is it your activities and your dreams that make provision come to you? Or is it the Lord? That's the decision. That's what tithing is. Tithing has nothing to do with new covenant, old covenant, churches just want your money. No, no, no. Who is your God? That's what tithing is. You tithe unto the Lord because he is your God. You are declaring who your God is. That's why this moment's so powerful. The Lord, some believe it was the pre-incarnate Christ in Melchizedek that came to him. Like, whatever you want to believe about that, this experience is the moment that everything changes. Because right after that, God promises Abraham a son. And where did it take place? At the Oak of Mamre. Sarah and Abraham live long lives. They continue to call on the name of the Lord. But, you know, there's a lot of story in between these moments. But Genesis 18 says that God comes back to the Oak of Mamre and he meets with Abraham. And in this moment, he tells Abraham, your wife, Sarah, one year from now will have a son. It's the moment that, you know, we tell a lot of stories about it, but this is like the life-changing, it changes everything. Because before this moment, Abraham tried to have a child with Hagar, who is Sarah's uh, servant, and they go to Egypt, and Sarah almost gets taken, you know, by Pharaoh. There's all of this craziness in their journey, but somehow they end back at the Oak of Mamre. Somehow their story keeps being drawn back to this place. A year from now, you're going to have a child. Sarah laughs. How can this be? I'm 90. He's 100. Are you kidding me? Like, I love, I love that, that statement. It says that she looked at him and laughed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Married couples get that. That's a, this is, whoa. 
This, this thing, though, marks them. It changes them because the child is born. The promise is there. A little bit later, Isaac, so much story in between, but it's the place that we're talking about today. Isaac lives his life, starts to grow in stature, and then eventually Sarah passes away, dies. Grandma dies. Mom dies. Abram looks around and he goes, we don't have a possession in this land. Where am I going to bury my wife? And so he goes to the people and says, hey, I need a place to bury the dead. They just want to give him a place. Like, here's the land. Take any of it. You're a prince among us. Like, who are we to you? Like, take anything. We'll give it to you. But Abram goes, no, I want that cave with the mouth of that cave open towards and looking at the tree. You read the story, it says that the mouth of the cave faces the oak, the tree. I want that place. And so Abram purchases that land for its proper price. And this becomes the stronghold, the root, the the place that Israel first occupies and owns in the promised land. And it costs them something. That cave, that tomb facing the tree is filled with promise. Isn't it amazing in the New Testament you start thinking about trees and caves or tombs that never had been buried in and the promise is in there. You see the symbology? It's incredible God's story. It's incredible and you're a part of it. Abraham eventually dies. Where do they bury him? In that cave. Isaac lives his life. It's a long one, 180 years. He lives his life. He has a wife, Rebecca. They have children. Where is Isaac buried? In the cave. Rebecca, in the cave. Jacob, he sojourns for a while, living with his uncle, has wives and children. He eventually has 12 sons, and they journey back. And where are they going? They're going back to that tree, that place. Leah dies. Rachel dies. Jacob lives. Rachel, Leah, put in the cave. Jacob. This is, I want you to think about this. When, when the famine hit the land, God had already provided Joseph living in Egypt. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. God provides for his people by coming to Egypt. And they live there for over 400 years. When Jacob and the brothers are reunited with Joseph, who had been sold into slavery, Jacob is a very old man. Jacob's last days are going to be lived in Egypt. On his deathbed, he calls his sons to him and makes them promise that when he dies, that they will take his bones back to the promised land and bury him with his fathers in the cave. This massive procession happens. It's an incredible story. But I want you to recognize something. This place never changes. There's something about this place that keeps calling them home. 
The family story, the boys grow up and they're going to go live their lives any way they want, but something in them goes, yes, but we must return too. Yes, go on your adventures, but home is here. Anchor point. You'll always know where you're going because you can look up and see the North Star. There's a rootedness. There's a home base. You have an anchor point. You're never lost because you always know you can go back home and this is where you belong. Are you understanding? It's so prophetic and strong. This thing that God has done in history, it speaks to you and I today. The holy tree was Abraham's place of encounter, promise, protection, and eventually fulfillment. It became his home, but it symbolizes the connection to God's promises and their calling. It anchors generations and guides the godly men and women to follow God's ways. Not the physical tree, but the place represented all of the memories, all of the promises, all the fulfillments. When you're dead and gone, what will your kids base their compass off of? Your history in God is their polar north. Your stories, your testimonies of God's faithfulness, generation to generation, they are the polar, polar north. Generation to generation. Calls to people. It's not physical spaces that matter. Although, can I tell you, like the Apostle Paul says concerning church, concerning community, people, he says, do not stop coming together as the body of Christ. Don't do that. I think this is part of it because kids grow up in church and it's not the religion side of it that matters. What it matters is what happened in those experiences. That they encountered God and there were stories, there were testimonies of God's faithfulness, God's power and provision in the encounters and all those things. Well, this building, this look, it's, it's a nice sheep shack. I'm glad that we were able to upgrade it. I'm thankful for it. It fulfills lots of promises. Like, amazing story that God is unfolding for us as a community. But can I tell you something? Listen, moms and dads, especially people that I've offended recently, if you have kids in our kids' program, don't just bail. Don't just be like, well, we can just go do it on our own because community doesn't matter. No, 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 that's like a divorced home. You don't realize what happens. Because this place, church in general, the experience becomes the house that those memories live in. And so what will happen in the future is when they are lost and they don't know what to do, it'll be Christmas Eve and their marriage is on the rocks and they don't know what to do. And you know what they're gonna think about? They're gonna think about, I gotta find a church service somewhere. And the North Star of God's presence and his connectedness and community amongst people will be calling to them. And they'll know how to find their way home. It's not about church. It's about what God's people, it's about this. What happens here? That's what the Oak of Mamre was to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then future generations. It was promising. It symbolized God's promises being fulfilled. 
Can you feel this? It matters. It matters. It matters. I was 15 years old, and I developed a circle of friends. This was in high school. Developed a circle of friends who um, did not share the same, like, they didn't grow up in Christian homes. They didn't, their, uh, the, the story that my friends were telling was not congruent with the story that I had grown up with. And there's this moment where I become friends with this group of people. And I could feel the conflict in my heart because this evolving story of our peer group and our friends and things we were going to go do and all that, it's going in a direction that is not the same as what I was grown up in. And I have a crisis moment. i got to choose. And I chose my friends. And when I chose my friends, my heart became like divided and calloused towards my parents. And so what that looks like is because we're going in a different direction than my home, it looks like rebellion. That's what it looks like because I'm choosing my friends over my parents, over my church, over my other community. Nope, I'm going this way. And this thing bubbled and boiled and eventually came to a head, came to a crisis point, and my friends were running away to Kansas City. First time I ever told it public was this was a 9 a.m. service, this story. My friends are going to Kansas City. And I decided I'm going with them. I pack my bag. My parents didn't know anything about this. It's all happening in the background. They have no clue this is happening. I pack my bag and I'm waiting. I'm in the kitchen, I'm looking out the window. I'm waiting for them to pull up because I'm running out the door and I'm gone. Already have a plan. I'm going to live with my friend's dad who divorced from his mom, lives down there. I'm gone. This is, I'm, this is my plan. This thing is evolved and hatched and our stories are going in different directions. And I'm waiting and then all of a sudden something happens. This massive thunderstorm starts and then the rain and the rain was so heavy you couldn't see i could not see out our kitchen window to even the street and then the hail like hail storm big chunks of hail and i'm waiting and it's i mean like this is intense dude My friends couldn't drive. It messed my friend's car up. They were stuck on the side of the road getting pounded by hail. And when they finally made it to my house, it was like an hour later, and my mom had found me at that point, and she's talking to me about the goodness of God. What happens in your heart? I mean, you have to like... You got, you got to, if you're going to rebel, you got to harden yourself and push. <laughs> and I'm watching like, like a Sodom and Gomorrah moment outside, <laughs> right? And then I have mom ministering the love of God to me. And it broke me. I, am I running at that point? No, there's no way. So when they finally arrive, I walk out and I'm like, hey guys, I'm not going to make it this trip. 
They're like, cool, no problem, we'll see you when we get back. Boom, and they're gone. But my life had been changed. See, while I'm rebelling, my parents are panicking, but my mom is telling me stories of her encounters with Jesus. She has notebooks full of the quiet times and these visions and experiences. And like we, it was a Baptist church, but my mom is as Pentecostal as you can be. <laughs> you know? It's Bible on Sunday and shut that at home, right? Like it's... Tongues, tongues, for those who have no idea what I just did. <laughs> so, so she's sharing her testimonies, and I'm watching as my dad is making major sacrifices. Like, he tells me his story. Like, he could have been a millionaire as a business person. Like, he had the skills, and things had gone so well for him. And then he got radically saved in the Jesus People movement, sold everything, and moved as a missionary. And has been given his life to Jesus ever since. And so when you have stories like that, it continues to anchor you. It's telling me, it's prophesying my future. It's giving me an anchor point in my heart. So when I'm considering wandering off and I'm going to go my own way, what happens? Man, the polar north keeps calling me home. I can wander, but after, listen, it doesn't matter how far you wander. If you can still see Polaris, then you then you know where you're at. You can't unknow it. Your choices to go deep in God are setting like a magnetic calling for your families. It's, it's prophesying to their futures. It matters. Now, some might say, well, it's nice that you have parents that love the Lord. I'm a first-generation Christian. Well, then you're an Abraham, and it matters all the more. Then, then you're setting the standard that future generations will know the Lord because of your decisions. And you should take them seriously. Is anybody alive today? I want you to hear with new ears this story. Okay? This is Luke 15. This is Jesus speaking. He said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate that falls to me. So the father divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. When he spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he got sent into the field to feed the swine or the pigs. He would have gladly filled his own stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. No one was giving him anything to eat. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? I'll get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was a long way off, 
the father saw him and felt compassion or mercy for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And said to him, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, like, cut him off. Be quiet. We're not going to that next phase. Why? Because you're still a son. You're not a higher hand. If you repented and came home, you didn't, like, sink to a different low. The, rep- the callings of God are without repentance. Someone need to hear that today. His father saw him, felt compassion on him. The son said, Father, I've sinned against you. But the father said to the slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate, for this son of mine who is dead has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And then they began to celebrate. Church people tend to think of themselves in one of two categories. You're the older son or the younger son. Right? The older son, right? He's religious. He follows all the rules. Right? He tries to control and manipulate. He's a real pain in the butt, and nobody likes him, so you shouldn't be that person. Okay? You're always whining about what they didn't give you. Come on now. Knock it off. We think like that, or we think about we're the younger son. Oh, we're just happy and thankful to be here. We got rescued, which is absolute truth, but woe is me. I just deserve to be a servant in the house of God. And you, ref- you refuse to embrace your sonship. But can I tell you that the story isn't about either of that? That's all nonsense. The story's about the dad. The story's about the father. The story is about the father who is going to treat you as an, you are a son. Don't embrace either of those mindsets. That's who you are. When did the younger son finally wise up? I mean, look at him. He is in a field. He just squandered. He lived crazy. I mean, in this day and age, that would be drugs and prostitutes live at high life in Las Vegas, and then all of a sudden, boom, you're in the streets yourself. Right? That's, that's today's language. Messed up his life. Messed it up from the outside. How many of us look at that person who is in the mud, who would gladly eat the garbage off the street, Messed up, and you go, oh, there's a royal son. Oh, they are on the verge of knowing Jesus. Look at them. But can I tell you that he is, I mean, one thought away from being restored. He's one thought away. Because when, it says, verse 17 When he came to his senses. That word senses means he came back to himself. He remembered who he was. When he remembered where he came from, when he remembered his father's household, when he remembered the stories, the testimonies, when he looked up in the sky at night and went, oh, there's the North Star. I know where I'm at and I know how to get home. As soon as he came to his senses, boom, everything changed. He's on his way home. Immediately he's on the path to restoration. I don't know when you came to know Jesus, but a large portion of us were broken and we didn't have any other options. 
This kid, it says, when his money ran out and his luck ran out. Like when he hit his dead end, then he was like, wait, what am I doing? Right? I I don't think it takes that. And I don't think you can tell from the outside where somebody's at in their journey there. People are one, one thought away from coming to the Father. They're one thought away. They're one prophetic word away. You see them in their squalor. You see them in their sin. It's a gang leader. And you're like, God gave you a gift of leadership. And they're cut to the quick. And next thing you know, they're going, I think my mom's praying for me. And they're on their way home. Do you see this? One thought away from returning to the Father. When, when the North Star got put in there. Most people don't know they're lost until their self-sufficiency fails them. He didn't know he was lost until he ran out of money. When his self-sufficiency failed him, then the call for home whispered, remember who you are. Anybody like the movie Moana? You can, she's out there, she's wrecked, right? And then grandmother comes, she remembers, and grandmother's saying, remember who you are. And then a song rises up out of her, and suddenly she's going to go, anybody? Am I? If you've never seen this movie, it's like crazy prophetic about your life, Okay. Remember, there are people here today, you'd say, I'm not lost. Look at me, I'm in church. But you have no idea where your life's going, and you don't know where you're at, and you don't know what to do. And all of that is about independence in your thinking. Do you know the word wayward? Webster's Dictionary, wayward. To be a wayward son. Waywardness is not like lost. The prodigal son, we're like, oh, he was lost and now he's found. We like that. That's the sheep, not the prodigal son. The sheep, right? The, the, the shepherd goes out, finds the one. Lost, now he's found. Right? No, no, no. The, the prodigal son was dead, now he's alive. Right? The, the wayward son, this is what I want you to hear today, because the wayward, the word wayward, Webster's Dictionary defines it like this. It's a person who follows their own sense of guidance with no paying mind to the guidelines or the story around them. Okay, it's the church person who thinks you're there on your own. It, you are a business guy and you're like, I give to the church and that's my role in the church. Thank you. (laughs) That is what heaven does to that, by the way. Did you hear the laugh from the little child? Out of the mouth of babes, baby. Come on. It's the person who's self-sufficient. You don't think anybody in here can help you. You don't think that you're on a God journey. You're, you're all on your own, right? You're self-sufficient. You're prophesying and you, you, you go, you, I have a calling and it's about me and I am the center of the universe. You realize that our planet is being hurled through space like 
faster than you and I can possibly imagine. We are not in control of anything. Like it's, you're imagining. Wayward means you're guiding your own stinking life and you think you're in charge and that the story that's unveiled around you doesn't apply to you. And so you just do what you want to do and everyone else has to deal with it. It's individualism. It's that independent spirit. It's that I can do it and we don't need you. Come on, y'all. Do you, do you know, like, the fabric of what's happening around you and people and in relationships and the divine touch of heaven and the story that's evolving, even here with this community? You're not on your own. You're here on purpose. Like God put you here. And when you see yourself as an exception, everybody else is there, but we're going to go do this other thing. It's so arrogant. It's like, it's waywardness. You're lost and you don't even know it. Business people tend to, they're strong financially. Listen, I'm a billionaire in cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. The chuckles throughout the crowd tell you where that's at right now. Yeah, you know stuff can change? You're riding high in the hog one moment and then boom, it's gone. You don't even know that today your life will be taken from you. Friends, don't live like that. Don't live like that. Your kids need people. Your kids need a home that talks about God's stories. Listen, we do our best here. I actually think that's kind of what church is about. This is like this, it's this social fabric that evolves. We're on a journey together. And we put storytellers in the front. Because you, we come to church and, and we, we see ourselves in light of what God's doing. And the story is told and it gives us purpose and direction. And we, help them, we know the journey we're on. Like I think that's what happens here. That there's a life that flows and when we do this together. Your kids are being taught in amazing classrooms. And if you're a part of our children's ministry, thank you. Do you know how amazing that is and how important it is? So amazing. Your kids are encountering God and they're hearing God's stories and testimonies and it's marking their lives. It's amazing what's happening here. And we should be a part of that. Right? Like fully embraced in that. But can I tell you, at some point you're going to move. At some point life happens. At some point, I mean, maybe, maybe you go to a different church. Maybe you, like, there's stuff changes and life The home is where the real guidance comes from. I can tell your kids a million stories, but one testimony from mom and dad around the dinner table is way more powerful because it anchors them in their story. We're here doing this together, but you gotta, it has to be congruent. You gotta take it home. You gotta do it yourselves too. Lift up point towards heaven, point towards the calling, point to, as a family, it'll anchor your kids in the future. And it's never too late. 
You could be a grandparent sitting in here today, and you go, man, I didn't do that with my kids, and you're filled with regret. No, no, no. You never stop being a parent. Grandparents like to skip the generation because the little ones remind them of the time when they liked you. Because <laughs> everyone likes the kids. Okay? And so the tendency is to be like, oh, look at this. This is way more fun than you. Okay? But grandparents, don't forget that you're still parenting. Don't forget that you're patriarchs and you still have a story to tell. Parents, tell the story of how you got saved. Tell the story of what Jesus has done. Talk about it in your home. Remind each other. Sing songs of thankfulness and praise. Remind them that they're a part of a bigger story than just their moment. You alive? Just stand to your feet today. There's, yeah, so much more here, but we're good. We're good. You got this. Come on, look at your neighbor and say, you got this. This is what we're going to do. We are going to pray together, and then I'm going to release a blessing. Okay, so this is, this is what I want you to do, though, okay? Every person in here, doesn't matter, all of us know that nearness to God and walking with him, that there's that sense of that you're with him in it and that, and that there's areas of your life that mm, you don't feel that nearness necessarily. Every one of us is a little bit of independence in us and thinks we're self-sufficient and that we don't need God. There's an area of your life you probably think like that in. Today would be a great day to come back to the table, recognize that you need him in every area, and to repent of waywardness. So what I'm going to invite all of us to do, it doesn't matter if you're meeting Jesus for the first time or you're coming back to him because you've been far away or there's just something specific in your heart that you know you've been resisting the Lord in. Whatever it is, we're going to pray this together as a community. Amen? So would you just maybe put a hand on your own heart this morning? We're, everybody's praying out loud, okay? Would you pray with me right now? Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus that he died in my place and that he was resurrected for me. And today, I surrender afresh my life to you. Jesus, you are my shepherd. You are my Lord. I trust your leadership and I submit to you, Lord Jesus. I invite you into my life. I invite you into my household. Your story anchors our lives. Holy Spirit, would you come and seal God's promises. Seal my life. Empower us to follow you. To do what you called us to do. And now I, I want to pray for those ones who are a part of your life, but you know aren't walking with the Lord. I, would you just come into agreement as I pray right now? So, Father, right now I also lift up the wayward children. Sons and daughters, moms and dads, grandkids that are not walking with you and that need to find their way home. Father, right now I'm asking that your Holy Spirit 
would surround them, fill them, speak to them. God, I pray that you would bring them to the end of their process, that their self-sufficiency would be broken off and they would come to themselves and they would remember, they would look up, they would see, they would recognize where they're at and they would return home. I pray, Holy Father, that you would surround them with other believers and encounters and awaken them, Lord God, to the reality that they absolutely need to come home. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for that, Lord. Rescue, save them, whatever is necessary, Lord. I thank you, Father, that in this season, thousands upon thousands will come to know you and return home to the Father's house. We just declare that right now in Jesus' name. So, Father, I bless your people today. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May his favor shine upon your life and grant you his peace. That everywhere you go, you'd advance his kingdom. I pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. And anybody who dared to agree with that said, amen. Come on, can we give a good clap to the Lord today?